In Acts chapter 4, where we are studying out of tonight, and we're going to read the first 12 verses and consider them. By the way, before we get into it, there's a story I'm reminded of in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. Ezra finds a copy of the law, the Bible actually, that has not been found for many, many years. When he finds it, he stands up, all of the people stand up, and he reads the law, explains what it means, expository teaching, from the rising of the sun till 12 noon, long Bible study. And it says that the people stood and they heard the teaching for four to six hours. Now, I don't plan to go that long tonight. We'll be out of here at nine. But I, yeah, that's right. Not to stand, Jay, no, you don't have to stand. But if they could stand for that long a time because they were so hungry to hear it, we can maintain our seat for the rest of the evening and not move to and fro and give attention and reverence to the Word of God as it's being read. So we're in Acts chapter 4. The first persecution, the formal persecution against the early church. Now this is something we're actually going to go into more detail Sunday morning because Jesus talks about persecution, really heavy persecution. But suffice it to say for now, persecution is a promise that God made to you. It's probably not a promise that you have underlined or it's not your favorite verse in the Bible. You don't quote it every day, but the Bible promises you persecution. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If they hated me, Jesus said, guess what? They're going to hate you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. And he said, in fact, and we'll read it Sunday, it is enough for the servant to be as his master. So you have been promised persecution, and if you live godly, you have gotten it. But also, persecution is not only a promise, it's a privilege if you're persecuted for the right reason. Now, if you're persecuted for being weird, it's not a privilege. If you're persecuted for living a godly lifestyle, it is a privilege. And in the book of Acts, chapter 5, it says over in verse 41, after they got back from a, a kind of a lengthy time of persecution before the Jewish elders in verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now granted, we don't see much of the real stuff these days in our country. We are not persecuted like they were persecuted back in the book of Acts. Although there are parts of the world we know people are persecuted, for their faith in Jesus Christ. This country has mild persecution right now. Now, it could be that times will change. And more than likely, they will change. We see the tide changing. And persecution will become more prominent. In fact, I know one Christian leader that has said on more than one occasion that he is praying for us that we get persecuted. Doesn't that comfort you? Somebody's praying for you that you'll be persecuted. You say, now why would anybody want to pray that I would be persecuted? Because persecution separates the men from the boys. And what's interesting is the church never got hurt when they were persecuted. They only grew stronger. They didn't grow weaker, they grew stronger every single time they were persecuted. They grew stronger internally and they grew numerically. Let me remind you of a promise that Peter made. 
through the Holy Spirit when he writes to a persecuted church in his epistle of 1 Peter. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says in the book of Acts that after the persecution, they were scattered abroad and they went everywhere preaching the Word. It caused them to take and do more outreach. It didn't slow them down, it sped them up. However, during this time, it separates people. The go-along-with-the-crowd bandwagon believers who are in it just to be in it, they go to church, they're really not faithful to the Lord. Those kind of people will fall away like chaff at a time of persecution, which is actually good for the church. Because what is left is strong, gutsy, fired up, committed Christians. And oftentimes those people who are borderline often get stronger because they have reason and purpose for their life now. And all of a sudden, the power of Christ is made more real in their life because they have to stand up for their faith, not just sit down for it. And so we're going to see this beginning in chapter 4 on through several chapters in the book of Acts, this persecution in the early church. Now it's centered around, as we've already read, a lame man. The persecution centered around a lame man who was healed. A notable miracle has been done. Now, this lame man was at the gate beautiful for years. Everybody knew him. People cruised by the gate of the temple and saw him year after year asking for money. Peter and John, about three in the afternoon one day, were going up to the temple to pray, and they saw this guy sitting there, and he had his hand out for a few shekels. And Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'll give to you. Get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And the man walked. Now, because everybody knew that this wasn't staged because they saw him for years, we read in chapter 3, over in verse 10, Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. As soon as this happened... Peter, the spokesman of Peter and John, he's usually the spokesman wherever you see Peter. He can't quiet down. He's got to speak. And Peter was speaking, and he used this as an open door of opportunity to preach the gospel. And he preached it hot and heavy. He got right to the point. He preached repentance. While people were responding and being convicted in their heart, and he called for repentance, in the middle of this whole scene, in the late afternoon, he was interrupted. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. I want you to notice that the source of persecution comes from the religious leaders. It's not the pagan people. It is the people who claim to be the caretakers of God's truth, the ones waiting for the Messiah the ones who hold the law, the ones who teach the law, the ones who study it. Persecution 
from the early church or toward the early church came from those religious leaders who claimed to know God. And you know what? You find that quite often. That it's usually religious people that persecute right on, gung-ho, born-again Christians. First of all, we read about the groups of people, and it says that it were, first of all, the priests. Let me give you a little background before we rush into verse 2. In the priesthood, which had the background of being from the tribe of Levi, there were 24 courses of priests. That is, there were 24 groups of priests who served their turn for a week. So they were in the temple for a week, and after a week they went home to their local communities and were involved in the worship system in the local synagogues. And then their turn came up again. They went to Jerusalem, spent a week. And so this happened to be the group of priests who had a turn spending a week in the temple worshiping that came upon Peter and John as they were preaching. Then it says, the captain, in verse 1, the captain of the temple. Captain of the temple was like the chief of police for the Levitical temple guard. The Jewish people did not have the right of governing themselves to the point of capital punishment if a crime were committed, except on the temple mount itself. If you were a Gentile and you ran into the inner court of the temple, they could kill you for that. And that's the only thing that they had jurisdiction over. So these chief of police, the temple guards, and here's the the uh, captain of them all, was the guy who was in charge of making sure there was order and peace on the temple mount. Now keep in mind that the temple mount was a big place. It wasn't just an auditorium like this that seats 1,800, 1,700 people. It was 35 acres of worship area. And a lot of people could be crammed into this, and so they needed a special police force to govern it. So as Peter's out there preaching repentance, the priests who were serving come running over. The chief of police, the captain of the guard, he comes running over. And then it says, the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees, as we've told you before, was one of the two groups in Judaism 2,000 years ago. And most of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, were Sadducees. They denied the resurrection of Christ. They denied that spirits exist. They denied that angels exist. They were very liberal. They were very non-spiritual. In the New Testament, it is recorded that Jesus had a run-in with these guys. They tried to trap him with a trick question. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. You don't have to turn to it. If you want to, you can. I'll read it to you. In Matthew 22, verse 23... The same day the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, that his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Which was correct. The law did say that. If you get married, one of the highest honors you can have is to have children. It was a disgrace to not have children in those days. Well, if you marry a gal, you can't have kids, you kick the bucket, it is your brother's responsibility, if he's single, to marry your wife and have a child in your name to carry on your family name. 
In verse 25, they continue, Now, there was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also. The third, even to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Now, obviously, that's a ludicrous example. There's a guy, he got married, he died. Brother married her, he died. The other brother married her, he died. You start wondering what kind of coffee she makes if everybody dies, even the seventh one, and then she dies also. You'd think that the seventh would say, no, 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 no. Forget it. I don't like the track record of this woman. Now they're giving him a hypothetical situation. Therefore, in the resurrection, they don't believe in a resurrection, but they're trying to trap him with a trick question. In the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, I love his answers. He didn't say, well, let me figure this out here. He just says, you're wrong. You are mistaken. In in Greek, you are greatly deceived. Not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Do you see? When you start excluding God out of your life, like these Sadducees did, and they did not believe in the spiritual realm of a resurrection, of spirit beings, angels, that kind of a person is self-deceived. He has talked himself out of that reality of the spiritual world. He is also, secondly, ignorant of what the Scripture says. And thirdly, he is without the experience of the power of God. For in the resurrection, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Great argument. Didn't you read that God said, I am, not I was the God of Abraham. I am, long after Abraham died. He's the God of the living, not the dead. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now here comes the early church. And the focus of their message was what? Jesus is still alive, guys. You killed Him, but He's still hanging around. He rose from the dead. And that is why the early church faced the clash that they faced from the Sadducees. Jesus had a run-in with Him, but Jesus was largely persecuted by the scribes and the Pharisees who were nitpickers. And they were worried about the little jots and tittle of the law. The early church was persecuted mainly not by the Pharisees, but by the Sadducees, because they were going around saying, Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. Now why did they, why did they interpret, or excuse me, why did they interrupt this sermon? Why did they come rushing on them and so angry about what was going on? Well, verse 2 tells us, being greatly disturbed, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In Greek, it's literally they were thoroughly vexed and indignant. You probably should know that teachers 
were allowed to teach their disciples in the outer courts of the temple complex, in that great massive 35-acre compound, a teacher, if he had credentials, if he was noted and recognized, could bring a group and could start teaching. Of course, people would come around and make sure that they were teaching the right things. Jesus taught in the outer court by Solomon's colonnade. Some of the early church uh, leaders taught out there in the court of the Gentiles. But here's a group of people that has a large crowd that is gathered because somebody's been healed. And you've got thousands of people. How do I know thousands? Because it says 5,000 of them came to know Jesus that day, as we read toward the end. So 5,000 came to know the Lord. There were a lot of people listening. Here's a layman. He's healed. A crowd gathers. The disciples who don't have credentials, who don't have schooling, who haven't been sanctioned with the seal of approval, are out there teaching. But more than anything else, they are angry because of the theology that is being presented. Remember, these are Sadducees. They don't believe in resurrection. And it says that these disciples preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The central theme in the New Testament of every single sermon in Acts is that Jesus came, died to pay the penalty of sin, and He rose again to conquer death and give everybody hope. That's the central message. He said it to the Jews. Half of them believed, half of them didn't. When he went to the Gentile cities, to the Greek cities, Paul preached the resurrection from the dead. If you were to look ahead when Paul goes to Athens, and he stands on the great Areopagus, that hill overlooking Athens, where all of the philosophers of the Greeks came. And Paul starts sharing the gospel. He said, I was cruising through your town today and I saw that you have so many gods. You even have a statue that says, to the unknown God, just in case you left someone out that you don't want to offend him. I perceive that you're very religious. And he said he started preaching Jesus to them. But as we go on in chapter 17 of Acts, Paul says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now listen to this. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, it was foreign to them. When they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. You see, to the Greeks, the idea that a body once dead could be resuscitated and live again was absolutely ludicrous, like it is to most people today. The raising from the dead. That there is life because Jesus rose from the dead and He will always live. There is hope for us who believe in Jesus that one day our bodies will rise again and we won't sleep perpetually. We will live forever and ever. That was strange to a Greek. A Greek didn't believe in that. Most of the Greek philosophers believe that the soul of a person is trapped by the body. And so death is welcome. Ever heard of the saying, the little cliche that says, oh, that poor soul. 
Well, that came from the ancient Greeks who believed that the soul is trapped in the prison of the body. And that the soul is in poverty until death releases that soul into freedom. So, to rise again from the dead is to trap the soul. They didn't like that idea. They mocked the idea. They laughed at it. Paul preached, and all of the early preachers preached, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Question, and I want to settle this before we move on. Why was this hammered on so often? Why did they always talk about the resurrection? Why is it that important? We can answer that question by keeping your finger here and turning over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul expounds on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And basically he asks, if there is no resurrection, then what? And he answers the question. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 12 it says, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now you could sum up this little section as Paul saying, I'll tell you what, if the dead don't rise, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let me tell you what that means. It means at least five things. Five. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is a liar. Look over in verse 12. If Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. How often did Jesus claim that He was going to rise from the dead? Remember when the Jews came to Him and said, um, excuse me, are you the Messiah? We want a sign. He said, alright, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And later he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given unto it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He told his disciples over and over again, guys, listen closely. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me up. They're going to kill me. But I'll rise again on the third day. Got it? No. But he claimed it. Now, if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, that means that our Messiah, whom we base our faith on, is a liar. That's, that's his first point. That's very important. Spoke to a lady yesterday after church. Her family's given her some problems. 
And she said, you know, my mom and dad have a Jewish background, but they really are atheist or agnostic. They really don't believe in the Scriptures. They don't believe in the Old Testament. And what they're telling me is that I've gone off the deep end, being a Christian, but they've told me that Jesus, they don't have anything against Jesus. Because Jesus was a good, moral teacher. I said, think about something for a minute. Jesus is not a good moral teacher if he made the claims that he made and did not live up to them. And this was the logic behind C.S. Lewis when he wrote one of his chapters on this whole issue. The trilemma. Lord, liar, or lunatic. And simple logic would tell you this. Think of the claims of Jesus for a moment. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Before Abraham lived, I eternally existed. I am. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. On and on and on. I and the Father are one. I asked this lady, I said, given those claims... What are the only two alternatives with those claims? She said, well, they're either true or false. Right. If you make a claim, it's either true or false. If I say, I'm a banana, either I'm right or wrong. If I say I'm a human, I'm either right or wrong. She said, okay, that's right. Logic tells you that there's only two alternatives, correctness or incorrectness, right or wrong. Okay. Let's suppose for a minute Jesus was wrong. And let's say Jesus made all of these claims. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham existed, I eternally existed. I and the Father are one. Let's suppose all those claims are wrong and Jesus knew they were wrong when he spoke them. Does that make him a good teacher? No, it makes him a liar. You see, if I say I'm a banana, and I know I'm not a banana... I'm not a good teacher. I'm a liar. Because knowingly I'm deceiving you. She said, okay. Let's say for a moment Jesus was wrong and he didn't know he was wrong. He really believed he was the things he said, but he wasn't. What does that make him? Well, put it in a different setting. President Bush gets on TV. And let's say President Bush said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to heaven except through me, President Bush. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. They would carry him to a presidential loony bin like that. That's megalomania. That's delusions of grandeur. So either he was right or wrong. If he's wrong, he knew he was wrong or he didn't know he was wrong. Given the claims of Jesus, he was either nuts, a liar, Or the other alternative, he was the Lord of all. And if he is the Lord of all, then you are confronted with his claims. What will you do with them? You can never get by. It is absolutely, it defies logic to say Jesus wasn't the Son of God, wasn't God made man, but he was a nice guy, a good moral teacher. No, he wasn't. None of those possibilities exist given his claims. So Paul says, if there's no resurrection, Jesus was a liar. He said it so many times. Secondly, the disciples were then liars. If Jesus lied, the disciples lied. Verse 15. 
Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. After the death of Jesus Christ, the disciples were absolutely hopeless. They were giving up on this whole following Jesus bit. One fact changed them. What was it? He's alive. The two on the road walking to Emmaus said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way? They were changed. Peter, after Jesus died, said, I'm going fishing. He went fishing all night. He caught nothing. And there was a lone figure standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples look over. They didn't know it was Jesus. And this man called to him and said, Cast your nets over on the other side. They cast their nets like they had done once before when they first met Jesus. And that net was so full of fish, it started to break. And Peter thought, That's the Lord. And all of a sudden, his hopes were rekindled. He threw his robe off. He swam all the way to shore. And he probably gave Jesus a big bear hug, like, I'm not going to let you go again. Changed their lives completely. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Jesus lied and the disciples lied. Now, many people actually believe that the disciples lied. To this day, there has circulated the rumor among certain groups, many Jewish groups, many non-Jewish groups, that the whole thing was a plot. It was collusion. The disciples stole the body and then ran around the world saying, He's alive. Can't find His body. Which doesn't make sense. Because, as you read the Scriptures, they were in no mood to go body snatching. They were scared to death. They had the doors locked in the upper room after the crucifixion of Jesus. They were scared because they thought they were next. And even if they were in the mood to find the body of Jesus, I don't think they were in the mood or had the capability to face several Roman armed soldiers and roll away a stone and say, excuse me, boys, I know that the penalty for you letting me do this is death, but I'm going to take the body. And so some people will say, well, the obvious answer is that these Roman soldiers slept. Well, don't you think they would be woken up by somebody moving a two-ton stone around? And even if, let's just say, they did lie, and they took the body of Jesus. How could you prove it? What if you were brought to a judge? He said, Judge, George over there stole my TV while I was asleep. How do you know? You were asleep. If you were asleep, how do you know who took it? How do you know the disciples stole the body? And the Roman soldiers were saying, let's say he stole the body. How do you know he stole the body if you were sleeping? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Jesus lied, the disciples lied. Third, Christianity would be a big fraud then. Look at verse 14. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain or for nothing, and your faith is also vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this is simply an institution with no foundation. We are simply following the teachings of a dead religious leader, like every other religious system on earth. And we lack the foundation that we claim. And Christianity would be a fraud. And you know, to many people it is, isn't it? 
Many people are, are content going to a worship service, not making a stand for Jesus, not living in obedience to Him, but going to church regularly, tossing in a few bucks, but never following Jesus. Christianity to them might as well not even exist. It's a club. It's a social thing. Going on, number four, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are still trapped by our own sins. Verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why? Because a dead Savior didn't do anybody any good unless He's risen from the dead. For Paul says in Romans 4, He was delivered up because of our offenses and He was raised up for our justification. If He made those claims, He died, He didn't rise, we're doomed. We lack the foundation. And finally, we have no hope for the future. Verse 18 says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Think for a moment of all the martyrs that have given their blood for Jesus. Being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. Being beaten. Being taken alive and had tar poured all over them. And used as a human torch in Nero's garden. Or of the early Christians who were taken alive and put in the skins of animals. And as the dogs and the lions who hadn't been fed for a long time would smell the fresh blood, they would come and eat the skins of the animals with the Christians inside. Alive. Why go through that? There's no future hope if there's no resurrection. It's absolutely ludicrous to go to the stake or to the lions and die if you're going to die and there's nothing left. All of these people suffered because they had a future hope they believed in. It's not going to end here. We're suffering now. We're going to die, but that's not it. Well, Paul says, if there is no hope beyond the grave, we're nuts. We are of all men most pitiable because we're living a pipe dream. We're basing our life on nothing. What's the purpose of suffering as a Christian if there's no future hope for us? Stephen, when he was persecuted, remember in Acts chapter 7, as stones were pelting his head, he finally caught a vision of the Lord and he stood up and he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That made such an impression on Saul of Tarsus. He thought, this has got to be real because nobody dies like that unless it's real. And his conscience was pricked as he was on the way to Damascus. He was pricked in his heart. And so Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? No doubt the death of Stephen had a tremendous impact upon Saul of Tarsus. He knew that it was real. The funerals that I officiate... I often find interesting because almost at a glance I can tell by facial expressions who is with me and who's not. Who's with the Lord and who's not. Who understands the promise of the resurrection and who does not. I first experienced this when my own friend died of brain cancer. And I went to his funeral. And the preacher stood up. It was Chuck Smith. And he just got up at a funeral and he just smiled from ear to ear. And... You know, half the crowd was smiling with him. The other half was going like, this is a funeral. What are you doing smiling at it? And he said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And there was an instant light that went on in our countenance as we thought where Gary was at that moment. But I started looking around at his friends who didn't know Jesus. And you could tell by looking at them they were so bewildered. They didn't know what was going on. How could you be happy in the midst of death? Because Gary is with the Lord. That's why. But if we have hope in this life only, which we don't, we have eternal life. It's something that lasts forever and ever and ever. Otherwise, we are of all men most miserable. And you know what? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, summing it all up, we might as well close the book and go home. This is absolutely stupid meeting like this if the dead do not raise and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All of Christianity hinges upon that fact. All of it. If Jesus didn't die, then this is ridiculous. But there's another possibility, and we believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. For it says in the book of Acts 1, He appeared with many infallible proofs. And you've experienced one of those infallible proofs. Your life has been changed. And dead religions don't change men's lives. Only risen saviors do. And you've experienced God changing the way you think, the way you look, the way you live. Proof positive that Jesus is risen from the dead. And if you compare your experience with a Christian in Thailand or India or South America, you find that they all have the same experience. I was this way before I knew Jesus. He changed me. And this is how I am today. Free of guilt. Having abundant life. A universal experience that you can compare it to. And so back to Acts. Now we see the reason for the emphasis all the way through on the resurrection from the dead. We get to verse 3, which tells us, And they laid hands on them. Now, as you know, in the Scripture, there's two kinds of laying on of hands, the good and the bad. They did not anoint them with oil. This was the bad kind of laying on of hands. They took them by force. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men, anthropos, came to be about 5,000. The word literally means males. The number of males. Now, ladies, I didn't do this. It's part of their culture. They were kind of male chauvinists when they would count. They would count the men. And this was 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. So... Some scholars believe as many as 15,000 people. If you had a man, a woman, and a child, more or less, gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Now that's significant enough to make these Sadducees a little concerned that perhaps this Jesus thing is getting out of our hands. 5,000 men. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, as many as were the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Doesn't it bless you that even though there was this turn of events against the disciples, against the preaching of the gospel, that even with this bad turn of events, a catastrophe we might call it, even in spite of that, the progress of the gospel went on. Now, if we were arrested for our faith, we would probably think, 
Who will do the work if I'm not there to do it? You know, you really have no idea the power of your witness and the long-range ramifications every time you open your mouth to share the Gospel. You have no idea. I think of Billy Graham. Just being obedient to the Lord, preaching the Gospel. Now, I'm one of those who when Billy Graham gave an altar call one time, that's why I imitate him all the time, that I gave my life to Jesus when Billy Graham was doing one of his crusades. Think of all that the Lord has done through one person responding to Jesus Christ. Let alone two, three, four, thousands, millions who will lead others to Christ, who will lead others to Christ. You see, you really have no idea the ramifications when you decide to be obedient and share your faith. That God, you might be touching a D.L. Moody or another Billy Graham. Someone who will just turn the world on fire with the gospel. And so about 5,000 of them came forward. Now, why such powerful results? We look at 5,000, perhaps up to 15,000 people saying, I want to follow the Lord. And we wonder why such powerful results then? Well, there's a few reasons, I believe, and I believe it's at the heart of every revival or renewal. And number one, there was the emphasis, the centrality of the Word of God. Look at verse 4. However, many of those who heard the Word believed. The Scripture was central. And in every great revival, Charles Spurgeon used to say, you will always find that common denominator that the Word of God is held as the very Word of God. I think there's another reason for it. The message was fresh. It was fresh from those who preached it and it fell upon fresh ears. They'd never heard it before. Ever had the experience of sharing the gospel with people here? They've heard it all before, right? You give them a tract, they throw it on the ground. Go to India where they've never, ever heard once and tell them that there was a man who was God in the flesh, who came to the earth to save them. He died, He rose again, and He will change your life. I have watched people literally maul me to grab a bundle of tracts that was in my upper pocket of my shirt and in my pants, just reaching to grab them so they could read them. Intensely interested in someone that promised to change their life. It was new. They'd never heard it before. You've heard the old saying, Familiarity breeds complacency. Well, it's true. That's why in this country, the gospel needs to be freshly proclaimed. There are many people, most people, who've never heard the real gospel. Oh, they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about God. They've seen churches. They watch the fights. The people fall on television. But they haven't heard the real gospel. They need to hear it from you. They need to see it in you. It was fresh. And there was another reason. Perhaps some of us overlooked this. There were signs and wonders that accompanied them. This man was healed. It was a notable miracle. They couldn't just say, that was pretty good preaching, Peter. Because there was a guy who was no longer lame from birth who was walking and leaping and praising God and they couldn't deny it. Perhaps you've noticed as you read through the Scripture the often used relationship between seeing and hearing. They saw something and they heard something. They heard the gospel, but they saw the manifestation. 
John the Baptist was in prison. He sent his disciples to Jesus. He said, go ask him if he's really the guy. And do you remember Jesus' answer? He didn't say, go tell him, yeah, I am. He said, go tell John the things that you have heard and seen. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The relationship between hearing and seeing something. Peter, when he stood before the council in Acts chapter 5, when they said, don't preach the gospel, he said, I cannot but speak the things that I have seen and heard. That relationship again. When Philip preached in Samaria, it says, and in one accord, the whole multitude believed what he said as they saw the signs that he performed. There was that relationship between preaching and seeing something visible. Signs and wonders following the disciples. I know that there are people who will say that the gifts of the Spirit were primarily for the early church. They don't exist anymore. In fact, I've heard people say, we don't need them. We don't need the gifts of the Spirit. We don't need signs and wonders anymore. We have the Word of God. Then I've heard people on the other end of the spectrum say, we don't need the Word of God as much. We have the signs and wonders. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are wrong. You need the Word of God preached and watch and expect God to follow that up with signs and wonders. You've heard some people's testimonies tonight of legitimate healing in their bodies. I have seen it. Some of you have experienced it. There's the preaching of the Word. There's the confirming of it with signs and wonders. So you need both. So you can be well-versed in Scripture and your life can just be Dudsville. On the other hand, you can be an emotional bag of wind flapping in the breeze at every supposed miraculous thing. You need both the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. One person put it this way. Too much of the Spirit and you blow up. Too much of the Word alone, you dry up. Enough of both and you grow up. And we need the balance, the Word of God and the power of the Spirit behind us. Now, let's go to the next verse. All these guys in verse 5 and 6 set them before the council. This is the Sanhedrin and the 70 ruling elders of the Jewish people. Actually, there were 71. 70 elders plus the high priest who was like the president. He called the thing into order, presided over it. And when they set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, that was a fair question. It wasn't a trick question. They had the right to ask it. They were commanded to ask it. God told them in Deuteronomy 13, if somebody comes along and performs a miraculous sign, and he uses the miraculous sign as a platform to teach the people, you better listen to his message. And if his message, although there's been a miraculous sign, if his message leads people away from true worship of Jehovah God, stone him to death. If the message leads people closer to God, then you can honor and respect Him. For the Lord your God is testing you. He was testing their discernment. So they asked, um, by what name, by what power or authority are you doing these things? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
Now that's the qualifying phrase. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. A few months ago, he lacked courage. Now he's Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that will enable you to be my witnesses. Your life can be so different when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power to be a witness. Oh, I'm so afraid of witnessing. So am I. Nobody wants to go out there and be persecuted or laughed at. That's why you need the Holy Spirit's power. My biggest hang-up as an early Christian is I couldn't witness. And so I concluded, I don't have the gift of witnessing. Now, there is a gift of evangelism, but every Christian is called a witness. And I discovered that the power of the Holy Spirit can come upon a person as you study the Word. God will open your mouth and bring things to your remembrance and you will be amazed at what God can do. Now look what God does through Peter. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen to him. He's not going to soft pedal it. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Now they were just fastening their eyes upon Peter and John. You know why? They'd seen these guys before. They recognized them as followers of Jesus. They thought they were all done with this Jesus character. They put him on a cross a few months ago. Now Peter stares them in the eyes and says, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man by what means he is made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man stands before you whole. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, you admire the guts, the courage of Peter. But then you think, well, no, not really. We admire the power of the Holy Spirit to take Peter and to use him. And what a promise that is to us. Those of us who are simple. Those of us who are very kind of quiet and meek. That God could take us and use us for His glory powerfully as He works through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's argument is, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands here before you whole. He's saying, you know what? This whole meeting is kind of stupid. This whole great assembly has gathered to try us. Why? Because a good deed has been done. You're standing in judgment with your arms folded. Why? Because a man who is lame is walking. That doesn't make sense. Well, let it be known to you, if we're charged for doing a good deed to this man, okay, I'll tell you why. Jesus Christ, the one you put to death a few months ago, God raised from the dead. That's like declaring war on the Sadducees, incidentally. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And he was as bold and as clear as you could get. You crucified Him. God raised Him from the dead. And it's by His name that this proof of His resurrection is walking around Jerusalem. And then He gets a little closer. 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, to escape the condemnation of Deuteronomy 13, Peter associates Jesus with a prophecy. Prophecy is Psalm 118, which was definitely messianic. The stone was rejected by you, the builders. Now, the Jews were familiar with the metaphor of a stone or of a rock. God was called a rock. He was seen as the rock of His people. The kingdom that the Messiah would set up, according to Daniel 2, was like a stone that covered the whole earth. Well, Jesus was the stone that God predicted. And the stone was sent to you, and you rejected the stone. And remember, Jesus said that fall on this stone and you will be broken, or the stone will fall on you and grind you to powder. This is the stone which is rejected by you builders. There's an interesting story. It is a story, could be true, could be false, that in the building of Solomon's temple, they quarried the stones away from the temple mount. Number one, so that you would hear no sound of hammers and chisels at the actual building site. It was done far away. And the stones were then brought to the temple and after they were hewn, they would be set without mortar. But they were so perfectly fitted, it is said you couldn't even put a metal thin implement like a knife in between the cracks. That they were perfectly flat together without mortar. And that in the quarrying of the stones, a stone was sent from the quarry to the men on the field building the temple that didn't fit any of the description that they had. They said, well, we don't know what to do with it. And they cast it aside. Threw it down the Kidron. Later on, the temple was almost built. And the people at the temple site said, we're all done. We're ready to dedicate the temple. But we need the chief cornerstone, the capstone on top, with the inscription so that we can dedicate the temple. The men at the quarry said, we sent it to you. You already have it. We sent it months ago. And they searched and they searched and they found that one stone overgrown by weeds and bushes in the Kidron Valley, the stone which came to them, which they rejected, it was the chief cornerstone. Jesus was the chief cornerstone of the nation. They rejected Him. And so Peter ends up by saying, in verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given or under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That, folks, is one of the most important verses in all of the 66 books of the Bible. Notice what it says. There is not salvation in any other. Every now and then, someone will say, well, now what about Islam? What about Buddhism? What about thisism and thatism? Don't all roads lead to God? Don't all sincere people make it eventually to God? No, they don't. Well, isn't that pretty narrow and exclusive? Certainly it is. You mean you're claiming to be narrow-minded? No, I'm claiming to be close-minded. Jesus, you know, you got to listen, was the most exclusive being that walked the earth. That's why He came to die, is so that all men could be saved. 
He was the only one that had the ability to save people. Thus he came. Thus anyone who wants to come to God must come through him. You've got you to believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, I am the way, exclusive, the only in Greek. The truth, the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. He said that. That's narrow. That's exclusive. And there's a lot of people that really bums them out. They don't like that idea. But you know what? Jesus has the right to say that and to be that. Because this is His world and that's His heaven and He framed the rules and the requirements for entrance. And that's His business, ultimately. But He's given everyone the chance to be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And see, that's what bugs people. They don't want to come to repentance. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Oh, I'll just kind of believe in that and God and this and that and stick it together and that's my religion. Because most people today are relativistic. They are existentialist. They're, they are their own authority. They begin from themselves. They build out from themselves. And everything is relative in life. Relative to what? Relative to what they think is right or wrong. That's good for you. It's not good for me. It might be good for her, but it's not good for everybody. What's good for the aborigine is not necessarily the truth for the Zulu. Truth is all relative. This statement cuts across that like a knife. There's not salvation by any other. There is no other name given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. I want to close with this scripture. I'll read it to you. Jesus said it on the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Notice it's narrow at the beginning. It's narrow all the way through. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow road. Notice there's two destinations. One leads to life. One leads to everlasting destruction. Oh, but all roads lead to God. Or all roads lead to nirvana. It's a very narrow road. Well, I believe that most people are going to go to heaven. Most people, well, it says very few find it. There's going to be quite a surprise on Judgment Day. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and that? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Those are some pretty sobering words when it's too late. Juan Carlos Ortiz in his book, Put it this way. The kingdom of darkness is like a wrecked ship that is sinking fast. When the captain knows his ship is lost, he goes to the passengers and says, Listen, those in second class, go to first. You're free to do whatever you want on this ship. Anyone who wants to drink, help yourself at the bar. It's all free. If you want to play soccer in the dining room, go ahead. If you break the lamps, eh, don't worry. The passengers say, what a great captain we have. We can do whatever we like to on this ship. But they'll all be dead in a few minutes. 
In the kingdom of darkness, you can have all the drugs, the lust, the cheating you want. Nevertheless, you're lost. You think that you are the king. You are led by the selfish spirit of your kingdom. But it's only a matter of time. Very exclusive, the gospel is. It is not broad. It reaches out broadly to every class of men. Every skin color. Every background. Every financial background. Status. Educational background. The gospel is for everyone. But it's only through Jesus Christ that a person gets saved. Now you may not believe that. And if you don't, that's fine. Just don't call yourself a Bible-believing Christian because the Bible teaches that. That's why the Christians need to be about the work of the kingdom. Proclaiming the kingdom. Because those people are lost souls. There is no other name given by which we must be saved. Jesus said, you must be born again. He didn't say, Nick, it'd be a good idea if you felt like it, and if it really fits your lifestyle and you're into this, that you'd be born again. I suggest that you'd be born again. You must be born again. He said that to a religious person. A person who was a scribe of the law, a leader of the people. Who had the book, but he didn't personally know the one who wrote it. That salvation is knowing Him. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank You for the firm, sure salvation that is ours based upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. How easy You've made it for us to come to know You by surrendering our lives as an act of faith brought about by Your grace only. And we thank You, Lord, that when we come to You by faith and by grace alone, that then our lives change and the works are produced in accord with Your will. But Father, we also pray for those who are on the boat that is about to sink and they think they have it made and they like the captain just fine. And they don't like the idea of being a Christian because they don't want to get on that boat. They're going to be dead very soon, perish very shortly. I pray, Lord, that they would reach out to that lifesaver that You send out, the lifesaver named Jesus. And they would commit their lives to Him once and for all. 